This is Awaken to Superconsciousness, Class 1. All right. This book that we're dealing with today, Superconsciousness, um, Superconsciousness, Awakening to Superconsciousness. And uh, it's subtitled about meditation and intuition and finding inner peace. And the subtitle is pertinent because the approach of the book is not intellectually oriented. This is not a book which is an attempt to sort of philosophically explain um, sort of what it is or what it looks like or anything like that. It's entirely oriented toward what we're going to do about it. And in the, it's, it's, the, it's in the title and it's also in the uh, fact that there's meditation exercises at the back of every chapter. But it's the whole way he looks at it and the whole way he approaches the book. It's from the very beginning. It's all about what is your life experience? What does it teach you? How do you feel about it? And what are you going to do about it? So even as we study this book, we should be thinking, uh, yes, of course, we have to do our best to understand the concepts, but it's the personal relevancy and the practical implications of those concepts that he is primarily concerned. Um, just a little about the writing of the book, just for fun. Um, this, this book was written during one of Swami Kriyananda's, one of the busiest years of Swami's life. At the end of that year, he wrote a letter describing to us everything that he did during that year, including, I think, heart surgery, open heart surgery. But uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it wasn't quite that year. But uh, uh, this book was first commissioned. We had, for a brief period of time, Ananda, uh, the publishing company of Ananda, had a partnership relationship with Time Warner Books. Maybe it was just Warner Books at that time. And some of you have the blue paperback. It was published by Warner Books then. Um, the publisher of Warner Books thought Swami Kriyananda had the potential to become very popular. He was wrong. <laughs> but it was a nice experiment. <laughs> and so they wanted a book on meditation. And uh, they asked Swamiji to write it. And he had many other deadlines. And so he set aside something like, you know, about 60 days or maybe even just 30 days. I think it was actually 90 by the time it was done to write the book, and he was going to call it Meditation for Beginners, or How to Meditate, or maybe I think Meditation for Starters, I think is the title he had. Just just a few days before he was going to start writing the book, the publishers told him, no, the book they wanted was going, they wanted the book to be called Superconsciousness. And Swami just said, well, you know, Meditation for Starters and Superconsciousness are two different books. You can't just paste that name on top of the other one. But they had become quite convinced by their market research that superconsciousness was a better title. And Swamiji is just sort of being the way he is, which is he doesn't, he doesn't fight back. He just takes what comes to him as what is meant to be. So he just accepted that he was going to have to write a different book entirely, a much more difficult book to write in the same time span because of the contract and the publishing deadline and so on. So... Um, he said this book should have taken him about two years to write, and he wrote it, I think, in three months. And he sent it off, you know, at midnight of the last day that the contract demanded that it be due. And then once quietly, he just said, well, he just put himself into a superconscious state, and then it wasn't so hard to write. <laughs> so it's a very interesting book from that point of view, from many points of view. It must be handy to be able to do that. Well, in the introduction to this book, Swamiji you know, starts by telling us that he's been meditating for 50 years and that he's never missed a day's practice. In fact, he's refined that at one point to say he's never missed his twice daily practice of Kriya except two times when he had a, a high fever and you're not supposed to practice anyway. Now, this is through three hip replacement surgeries. He doesn't have three hips, but he had to have one of them done twice. 
open heart surgery, um, and numerous life-threatening experiences. Real, I mean, you know, real life-threatening experiences, near-death experiences without, as he says, the benefit of the tunnel of light. <laughs> Just the going to the edge and coming back. But he, he gives us a very interesting reason in the introduction to the book. He says simply, it's that I just can't imagine not meditating. It's like, it would be like deliberately making myself suffer. Why would I do that? I don't meditate, he said, out of any sense of discipline. I meditate because life is so much more enjoyable when you meditate. It's a very simple and a wonderful attitude, isn't it? And not untrue for the rest of us at all. It's just that, as he explains in the first, second, and third chapter, which is what we're talking about today, we're a little bit confused. We have, as Swami describes elsewhere, we don't recognize our choosing the lower level of consciousness for the actual disaster that it really is. It appears to us to be much less catastrophic than it actually is for our, our total well-being. But ah, therein lies the tale. So that's what we're going to study. Um, most of you have been in these classes with me before, but some of you are new. Um, usually, I, I'm not... Sometimes I'm sort of systematic, sometimes I'm not. just depends on the mood. Um, I'll, I'll probably just go through one, two, three chapters. I know when I first announced I only told you we were going to do two, but I realized we had to do three chapters some nights, and so I decided to start off that way. Um, I usually just talk for a while, and then I stop and let you ask questions, especially if you have specific questions about specific chapters I like to make sure. In fact, I don't mind starting with that. Does anybody have any specific questions about Chapter 1 before I even begin? Because we can begin there as much as anywhere else. If you don't, I'll just talk first. See what happens? Okay. Dharma was the one who sat across from me at Christmas and said, Whew, I started reading this book and I didn't understand it at all. I said, oh dear, I chose it because I thought it was easy. Because <laughs> I'd remembered other parts of it that I, were more familiar to me. <laughs> All right. The first premise that Swami is trying to establish in this book, which is an argument against people who aren't present in the book, but it's an argument against certain delusions of our time. And partly what he's trying to do is he's trying to inspire us on a practical level with an understanding, first of all, of how natural meditation is how really fundamentally easy it is if we just understand it properly, and also to just sort of get ourselves oriented to picking up life from the right angle. So he starts just by simply talking about that everything is consciousness, and that all the other theories of reality, even scientifically, are all gradually giving way to the theory of consciousness. And especially what he's arguing against is this all-pervasive thought that has come in through atheistic philosophies like communism and a kind of atheistic approach to science, which is now fortunately being eroded by the scientists themselves, in which there's this attempt to somehow show that the brain and the body come first and that everything else comes afterwards. And Swami has this wonderful way of stating this in here where he talks about the only true reality is the superconscious level and everything else filters that reality. I think that's such a, a really interesting way to say it that the whole life experience we're having is a filtered version of what our true reality is. And so our goal when we meditate and our goal for the sake of being happy and being having some control and influence is to sort of take off the filters. And the filters are our identification with our body, 
our entrapment in the waves rather than identifying with the ocean in this field of duality that we're always in where it's one side or the other and we imagine that we'll be happy if we can grab if we can hold if we can hold the pendulum on one side and never allow it to swing and instead of sort of um, looking to the truest mystery which is you know what what am I aware of what am I aware with what is awareness in other words what is consciousness we, we run all around on the superficial side of things even the first exercise of this chapter which I, I um, have been meditating with since I read it just the simple thought that always underneath whatever is happening there was always a calm place where it's not happening essentially it's very interesting to me to read that particularly because when I look back on my entire life, I mean my childhood, I always had a, from a very young age, I was always intensely looking for the truth and had what we would call yogic samskars. Samskars are past life impressions. I recognize now that I had past life impressions from having studied this teaching in previous lifetimes. And one of the things that I would always do as a child to calm myself down when things would happen that would make me unhappy or mad is I would go into myself and I would keep going until I found the place where it wasn't happening anymore. And it was just sort of like I, I thought of it in terms of there's always a place where I'm still okay no matter what's going on. I mean, I didn't meditate. I didn't see any flashing lights or, or nothing like that. But it was sort of an exercise of my willpower to just sort of uh, push it push it back or, or whatever you would say which is really almost exactly what he describes here um, which is that there's always a level that we can go to which is which is the origin point of all of this that we're experiencing and that is the pure consciousness which is our nature um, he also really makes a strong point which is very important when Yogananda was talking in one context about death, he said that people who have meditated have an easier time facing death because if you have meditated, you have become aware of the fact that consciousness exists without the brain. Okay, and this is the point that Swami is also describing here, that it's not the brain thinking that makes us conscious. Because we are conscious, we know the brain is thinking. Do you see the difference? We're not, as he, he, he quotes, it's not that I think, therefore I am. It's that I am, therefore I, th I think. Because you, there's something that knows that you're thinking. It's not the thoughts happening by themselves, is it? And Master talked about when people begin to die and their physical bodies begin to die and their brains begin to die, if they believe that the only consciousness they have comes from the brain, Master said, when the brain begins to die, they feel obligated to go unconscious, is how he put it. And often, if people have no awareness beyond the physical, they'll die, they'll go to the astral world, and they'll never really wake up until they have another brain to think through. And as he puts it, the astral world for them is kind of a gray dream, a sort of restful place where they're not really unconscious, but they never really wake up because they don't know how to wake up without a physical body. Isn't that interesting? And only when they finally are back in a physical body and they're babies and they can be children and begin to think again do they sort of come into an awareness of themselves. He said, by contrast, people who have meditated 
or in one way or another have understood themselves to be more than just the physical reality, when that physical reality dies or begins to fade away, we have an understanding of how to move into the other dimension of awareness that was never dependent on the physical body. Isn't that interesting? And then we have the capacity to go more toward the light, to go more into the astral world, to have astral life experiences before we have to don a physical body again. And of course, all, all of what that does for us is that even when we come back into a physical body, we have, we have impressions, strong impressions, of an awareness that's beyond the physical body. We also have an awareness of a kind of freedom that we don't have in the physical body. Often we have an awareness of a more refined reality than we find in the physical world that we're in. All of which are very, very impelling, compelling um, forces in the way we direct our lives as, as time goes on. We, we find ourselves dissatisfied with an ordinary level of consciousness and we're, we're pushed because we, we know that there's something more. And of course, where are we pushed to? We're pushed to environments in which more subtle levels of reality are presented to us, such as this one, as, a, as an example. It was very interesting to us when we first bought the community where we now live. The vibration was exceedingly low. The police used to have to come out two or three times a week um, to break up fights or drunks or domestic violence or, you know, or drugs or just some kind of thing. It wasn't utterly despicable, but it was right on the edge of not being really a very nice place. And it was kind of a dark spot in the neighborhood, so the neighborhood was glad when we came in because we upped the vibration a good bit. Well, it was so amazing to see how people of low consciousness, which unfortunately most of these people were, created around themselves an ugly environment. That's what they felt at home in. There was trash all over the lawn. There was one, one of my favorites was a man who lived on the second story balcony. He threw his paper away by throwing it over the balcony. Of course, it landed in the patio of the person who lived below him. But that was just how he threw it away. <laughs> I don't know, just threw it away. People, every time you'd cross the lawn, you'd just have to pick up garbage. And the, the apartments were almost all decorated brown. Just a real dark brown. You know, just dark brown, gray, black. Just no color, no light. And even though the apartments themselves were dark, the people inside kept the windows, the curtains drawn. You know, it was sort of like this, this impelling urge to come into as heavy a consciousness as possible because that, that was the comfort zone. You know, we just purged it and made it white and opened the curtains and added windows and just because that's the astral world we all remember. You know, our astral world is very light, has light colors and pure colors and, and open spaces and is very bright. And that's sort of the vibration that we live on. We have a much stronger memory of those superconscious states. And our, our life experience is one, whether we articulate it at a young age or not, of trying to escape the confines of the heaviness of this world because we know there is something else, even if we can't phrase it. There's just like there's, there's, there's a better deal somewhere, and I'm going to keep going until I find it. Isn't that right? And then you pick up a book or somebody hands you something, and you feel like, well, this is it. Now, this is what I was looking for all this time without ever being able to put words on it. And then sometimes, like I was describing with my childhood, you look back and you didn't, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. But I did. I was just doing it in my childlike way. I remembered that there's a place where you're always okay. And that somehow this world can be, can be dealt with by going, by changing your consciousness. 
And, and that's because we recognize, you see, that principle comes when you recognize that the foundation stone of life is consciousness. And, and, and if the foundation stone of life is consciousness, then all responsibility rests with you. And all potential freedom rests with you. I have to confess that my first real revelation about that was uh, chemically induced. <laughs> when I was young and wild. But I didn't, it, I didn't really uh, take chemicals for very long because for me it was, just, it was just necessary to really get that once into my head. That if you change your consciousness, chemically or otherwise, absolutely everything is different. Just everything is different because all we're ever doing is filtering reality through whatever state of consciousness we have. There is no fixed reality. It just depends on how we look at it. Now, the reason it's important to really emphasize this because is if you really know that, why do we spend time working on anything else? You have to really ask yourself that question. What, what, what am I going to accomplish by working on anything else except consciousness? That's why Swami spends such a long time sort of trying to persuade us of that point. Because all other efforts to make matter get into line, to make our physical bodies get into line, everything, it's not that we don't have to work at all on those levels, but if we work at it first from the level of consciousness, then we're picking it up quite simply by the right string. Which is why Swami says, why would you ever skip a day of meditation? Because if you take care of your consciousness, you take care of everything. What else could you be doing that could be more important than that? Or everything else that you do will function so much better if you first take care of your consciousness. I mean, most of us find it very difficult to go without brushing our teeth or out, out taking a shower. And yet there are lots of people who don't do that either. But that's sort of what it's like once you really get into meditation. You just don't feel clean all day. Swami made the same remark about the energization exercises, which it's also true for those of you who know them and do them. If you don't energize, you also have cobwebs through your system all day long. And why would you want to do that? Your consciousness is off, and therefore everything is off. So it, it's also very important to uh, focus on, on just that fact of consciousness, because when experiences of life seem like too much for us, it's very important to ask yourself, what is too much? What could be oppressing me? What, what is it that's oppressing me? What's oppressing me is the state of consciousness that, certain con that I've allowed certain conditions to persuade me I have to have, you see? No, again, nothing else is ever happening because all it is, the brain, the emotions, the feelings, the physical body, are just a filter for that consciousness. And yes, things happen. We become sick. We you know, become distraught. But all that we're doing then is we're allowing a muddy filter to filter the superconscious state. So how do we clean the filter? And again, he takes us back to the practice of meditation. Now, it's not always possible. Sometimes we're too upset. You know, sometimes the filter the is really clogged. And we, we can't always get back to a pure state of meditation. But we can always recognize that we can do something that starts working us back through our consciousness. Does that make sense? Are there comments or thoughts or questions on that? Okay. Uh, just a question about chapter one. Mm -hmm. that I was just um, when you talked about meditating, you talked about going into the center, the student center. But he also talks about going into the heart center, like he wants to solve a problem, to give a perspective. Is he talking about the same thing? Is the heart center? Is the center that he's talking about when he goes to meditation. 
Well, the, um, well, we can talk more explicitly about it, but let me put it this way. He describes intuition as calm feeling. And we'll, we'll describe that a little bit more. But where feeling is agitated is in the heart. And therefore, when the heart is calm, then intuition is possible. So there's a strong relationship between um, being in the heart but not in the heart in an emotional sense. It's the heart chakra, and it's, it's calming the heart chakra so that the energy of the heart chakra, instead of swirling around and disturbing us, actually flows smoothly through the spiritual line. So it's not like you make this line, well, I meditate here, I meditate here. Generally speaking, we meditate here. But if the heart is not calm, it distracts the awareness and it, and it, and it muddies the water of intuition. Calm the energy and then draw the energy up to the spiritual eye. But you, but if the energy is restless, it draws the energy down from the spiritual eye, because you you see the light here and it's in the light that you see it. It, it um, the way we often say it is you concentrate at the spiritual eye, but you feel it in the heart. So it's a little bit like your concentration is a little divided. I don't know how to say it better than that. We can work with it when we get a little more into it. What was your question, Eric? I was trying to get back to a point where not only in this book, but when you take several stuff, he, he talks about how really there is nothing real, nothing that's really needed. It's all in here. It's basically all, all, you know, when you get back to where you're in a total remembrance of God and, and, and that basically gives you consciousness. But I, I have trouble. Uh, uh, Combining that with the fact that we do live in a material world, and just go out into the middle of the field, even if we reach that state and sit there, because we just fall over and die of starvation or exposure. Not really, but let me explain why. <laughs> <laughs> let me see. Let me see. Well, I'm assuming it, that we're not, we're not as far along. I was just trying to figure out which. I, the chapters are mixing up in my mind, so I'll um, I'll describe it from this point of view. It's not as if the material world doesn't exist. And it's not as if in our focus on superconsciousness we no longer relate to this world. That's a great mistake. And that's a great mistake that um, spiritual amateurs often make. That they, they, they think somehow that because consciousness and spirit is the first priority that therefore they're absolved from having to participate in this world in a proper manner. I actually knew in my very early years a man who became a thief based on his study of philosophy. He decided it was all a dream, and since it was all spirit anyway, what difference did it make? And that's why. Yeah, well, that's why in, in lower ages often they keep the higher teachings from the average person because they'll just mess them up like that. Okay? It's more a question of picking life up from the right string. It's it, to arbitrarily um, cut off the material dimension because the spiritual dimension is foundational is just as false as cutting off the spiritual dimension because the material is more obvious. It's a question really from what level do we live? And as Swamiji writes later when he talks about energy and magnetism in the spine and he talks about the magnetism of your, uh, that, that flows through you, especially through the, the spine, is the force that draws to you everything that you need or want in your life. And if you first magnetize the spine uh, correctly and dynamically, 
then it gives you the power to move through this life properly. If you're having difficulty moving through this life properly and, and get more and more at the, to the edge of yourself, you're, you're working as uh, we often describe it in meditation class. If you have a hose with water coming out of the end of it and you want to direct it in a certain way and the water is just flowing out of the hose and you just bat it with your hands, you know, it's not a very effective way to do it. But that's a lot of how we live. We're just kind of, our energy is going everywhere, kind of batting it with our hands, trying to get it to make us wealthy or find relationships or get a job. And it's just about that effective. If you can get your hand on the hose, you have a better chance, right? If you can get your hand on the nozzle, too, you can really sort of make the whole thing work the way you want it to work. You're still going to water the garden, but the farther, the closer you get to the source and the more power you have in relation to the source, the more you can make the whole thing work. But the point is, once we're in a physical body, this is the, the system. It comes all the way through. And we're here, and we have, we're here because we have karma to work out, and we, it's not going to work to just stand there on the edge and hope that it'll pass us by, you know, or work itself out. Bhagavad Gita is extremely explicit about that. You don't overcome it by not doing it. But you don't overcome it by simply doing it. You overcome it by doing it from the consciousness of superconsciousness and aware that all of these experiences are there in order to teach us many of the lessons that are in these first three chapters about the balance between uh, reason and feeling, the, the truth of pure wisdom and pure love versus mere human emotions, the, the expressing through human emotions the higher states of awareness instead of merely having those states become our definition, the developing of, of inner power so that in fact we can attract to ourselves and accomplish what we want now as for if you are truly in a state of superconsciousness, which is to say if your filter is completely clear if there's nothing blocking and what really comes through you is that pure energy and your uh, inner power is so great you literally do attract to everything you need and you may sit down and meditate until, until death if that's your destiny but just as likely, you have to do nothing outwardly, but you're doing so much inwardly that whereas a lot of us have to generate magnetism by running around and making phone calls, right? <laughs> if, we, if we really have sufficient inner strength, we generate the same magnetism more clearly merely by radiating with the power of our mind or the power of our heart or the power of our prayer, and the same will be drawn to us. The story of Ramana Maharshi, who was a great saint of India, is an extraordinary story. He was a young man. He had this uh, um, uh, extreme experience, this revelation that just came to him, as he tells the story, almost from nowhere. He was completely transformed by it, and he wandered away. He just wandered off and started meditating. And he wandered off and found the basement of some temple and just started meditating there. India being what it is, um, his magnetism was such that people found him. And they just started taking care of him, and that was the rest of his life, basically. For the rest of his life, he just took care of his inner consciousness, and people took care of everything else. And he lived to a ripe old age and helped many disciples. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's the, like, the one-minute version of his life, but it, was, it really is quite a story. Because once he perceived that consciousness was everything, he perceived it was so much power that he was incapable of paying attention to anything else. But he was truly perceiving it. Now, when you really, 
it's a little bit like when someone wrote Mozart and asked him, how do you write symphonies? He was a, another composer. And Mozart answered by saying, well, you start by writing single melodies, and then you write duets, and then maybe you write quartets, and then you write this and this, and then eventually, you know, you can do a symphony. And the composer said to Mozart, but that's not what you did. You started right away with symphonies. And Mozart said, yes, but I didn't have to ask anyone how to do it. <laughs> so it's sort of like that. If we have to think about it, it's not time for us. If it comes upon you, you won't have to ask anyone. You'll just know. But in between, while you're looking for a job, while you're trying to work out your marriage relationship, while you're trying to balance your checkbook, pay attention first to your consciousness. And always be aware of the fact that if you're doing it with right consciousness, it's much more likely to work. I know um, for, uh, for many years, I, I remember at a certain point in, in a time when I, um, I started, to, I just, I, I've always been a bit high strung, but I was even more so. And uh, Swami said to me once, you will not do, as he put it, you won't be able, you won't do more good by doing more. Which is to say that, that by overworking, my consciousness was getting out of attunement. And therefore, even though I was, I was moving around and seemingly doing more, I wasn't doing more good because my consciousness was not where it was meant to be. And it was a very simple uh, phrase that I've kept in my mind ever since. And so it, to me, I think of it like this. If you don't have good magnetism, you're not going to be able to accomplish anything. And it, your magnetism will get messed up when your consciousness gets messed up. So when you find yourself acting with bad consciousness you're going to have bad magnetism and therefore it's not going to work so you have to step back as far as you need to or have space to to make your consciousness right so that your magnetism is right so that what you're doing will work because everything is consciousness there's no level where it's not happening that way do you understand i mean how many times it certainly happened to me when you just get a little off and you push a little bit and whatever you're doing you break it you spill it you mess it up, it, it disappears from your computer, whatever it might be, right? And then you just know, I've just got to stop and pull myself together here. And, and again, this is, this is the very simple truth that Swami has in the first chapter of this book. This is the implications of what he's saying. There's no reality but consciousness. And it's really, it's just great. It's horrible too because it just puts all the responsibility on you. You know, all of the pleasure of being able to blame somebody or something is gone, totally gone. But all the capacity to be in charge of what happens to you is in your hands. And even though there's responsibility with that, there's such freedom into our hands have been given the keys. You know, that's just exactly what it's about. Does that make sense? Yeah, the potential and everything. It's just such a... I love that, that part about if, it's, if, it's, if it can be done, I mean, anything that can be done already exists. All we have to do is just tune into it on the superconscious level and bring it forward. You know, music, art, anything. It's a, it's a tremendous, it gives that advice. If you have any problems, if you have any creative work to do, just start by tuning into the calm center of it and just, just find it in the infinite. If you even think of doing it, it already exists. I mean, there's so much positive power in that. Swamiji's ability to create and to move energy and to do things is based on this absolute knowing that it's there to happen. And he puts that out with so much force. 
And if it occurs to you to do it, it can be done. Now, that doesn't mean you have the, you have the power to do it just like that. You have to put out the power to do it. But even knowing that it's there um, is, is a great deal of the power. You know, just the, the faith and the confidence that it can happen. And if not in this lifetime, then in another. You know, sometimes we have ideas that are too big for us, but we can grow into them. Comments or questions? Yes. Go ahead. I could tell. <laughs> talking about plumb this is page 23 plumb the depths of intuitive perception within you at the calm center of your own heart if any restless or disturbing feelings arise there withdraw deeper still to the very center of feeling as if to the calm eye of a storm and then he says as any period on this page might be reduced indefinitely in size even to the point of becoming invisible under the strongest microscope without ever ceasing to, to exist, so there is no limit to how deeply you can withdraw into the center of your being. Try to find the innermost center of intuitive perception in your heart. If you experience the slightest disturbance, go deeper still. Finally, you will enter a vast hall of calmness. That center is the center of everything, everywhere. This, not intellectual analysis, is the way to attain perfect insight into people and events, into any difficulty that you face in life. This is the way of intuitive understanding. Your intuition must be cultivated, not abstractly, but with kindness toward all, with acceptance of whatever happens, and with perfect love for all life. This, I love this part. This is, this is long. I won't necessarily finish all of it. But this is also the way to banish pain, both physical and emotional. Focus with calm feeling on your inner center, then project that center into the pain and visualize yourself at its center and concentrate there. If you can penetrate deeply enough to its center, it will cease to exist. You will find then an ability to cope with any trauma. When you can understand everything from its center, you will find that you can turn even major setbacks in your life to a good advantage. Similarly, when faced with any problem in life or when undertaking a creative project or to help you attune yourself to countless situations, seek your own heart center. Then from that center, visualize the center of the matter at hand and you will know suddenly exactly what to do. 
It is more difficult to visualize the center of an abstraction such as a problem. Think of your definitions of it then as layers to be peeled off and cast away. When no layers remain, you will find yourself at its center. To clarify your intuitive awareness at that center, hold that awareness up to the superconsciousness. Okay, now let me just let me describe to you how I have dealt with this many times in my life. Let's say there's a, a situation in which we don't know what job would be appropriate for someone or someone's not getting along. I mean, this is like over years. Someone's not getting along with someone else. Let's say I'm not getting along with someone else. You sit down and meditate and the, the, the tendency is to think, well, he said this to me and I wonder what he meant by that. And gosh, when he talks to me like that, it always makes me react. And when I react, then I start thinking like this and then he, his, his point of view threatens me. And so I go back into this and I've always hated from whenever I was a child. You know, that's sort of how you go. Or you think, let's see now, I've really got to write this program. I wonder if I should start with this section first or should I put that section first? And how, how are these people going to respond? And if I put that there, but then that, that committee group won't like it. And I mean, you know, what it is is you just start laying all the details out. Okay? So let's go back to the person. So first you start, you, it, first you have to start by getting the tape to stop in your own mind. So you can't just be, every time you think about, you can't, you can't first focus, let's say, on the other person you're agitated with if every time you focus on them, the tape starts running. So the first thing you have to do is you have to keep dropping back deeper and deeper into yourself till you get to the point where it's not happening for you, or, or to, at least till it's, it's comparatively calmer, right? Okay, comparatively calmer. And then now, instead of thinking about the person that you're irritated with, in terms of all the details of how they irritate you, you start trying to realize that deep within that person also, this same inner spark lies. And all of this that I'm seeing around is not really their nature any more than it's mine. And so you, you try to look. Sometimes you can think of the person and visualize their, their, their spiritual eye. And it's almost like you look right into their spiritual eye through yours and just feel deeper and deeper, you know, in their soul nature, who is this person? In God's eyes, what does this person look like? How does, if I were Yogananda, how would I see him? If I were him, how would I feel to myself when I'm meditating? Until sooner or later, you, you feel yourself in contact with something other than the filters. And then from that level, from your center to their center, you think, well, how do we solve this problem? And what will suddenly come to you is not, well, I said this and you said that and he said that, but often very creative ideas. Or if not creative ideas, a new sense of attunement that makes you know that you're not going to follow all those tapes again. And it really makes no difference what your mother did to you, your father did to you, and why you felt that, and who he said, and why you said it, and how many years it's been going on. Because once you drop below the place where the waves are happening and can unite on the ocean level, you can like essentially both surface and it won't be so turbulent at the top. right? Or at least if you surface into a calm part of the lake, if they throw waves over you, it, you, won't, you won't meet it with waves. Okay. Now the same thing with... Uh, a writing project. I do a lot of writing, and so for me that's a, a big thing. It's you just sort of instead of, oh, should I do this? Oh, I'm so worried about this. Oh, how am I going to meet the deadline? Oh, it's so much to do, and the papers aren't done. You know, this, all these different things. 
you just sort of go down into the the center of whatever it is. Let's say it's a program guide or, you know, a, a class. What am I really trying to accomplish here? What does God really want? What really is, what, what's, what's trying to happen now? You know, what is the spirit? How does Master want his work presented? And you go way below all the details. And then often the, the spring that comes to you shows you immediately how the whole flower is supposed to grow. You just pick it up from the right string. I certainly know um, often, well, when I have to give a sermon or something like that. Very often I have no idea what I'm going to say. And I'll just go way into the center of the fact of, here we are, it's Sunday morning, he's almost finished reading. <laughs> In a couple of minutes, it's my turn, you know? <laughs> and here we all are. But it's like, it's like not, don't think, I have to speak, what am I going to say? Anything like that. It's like right in this moment what is needed. You know, just right now what is needed. What All these people have come here, Lord, and they're hoping for something. Right? So right in this minute, what do they need? And very often one phrase will come into my head. Just one idea. Because it's just like that's the kernel. And then from that, the rest of it will just flow. And I know that it will. It's not based on, well, if I say this and this and this and this. Sometimes it's very weird what will come to me. Totally weird. But at this point, I trust it. I'll just stand up and say it, because I know it's from the heart of it. And sometimes, I, if I'm not centered enough, it doesn't work as well. And those of you who've been around a while can probably tell, right? But sometimes it works just beautifully, because it's just right from the heart of it. It's not a problem to be solved, but it is in a sense, because a solution is needed in a very short period of time. Here we are. Does that make sense? They were good yesterday. But they're not right in this moment. They're not the right ideas. And other ideas will come. Or they'll come back to me. And I'll just say, Divine Mother, I thought it was really good. So if it's good, tell it, give it back to me. And she will or she won't. Does that, does that answer it? It, just, it gives me a way to start. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's just like it was so inspiring to me. But I didn't know, like, and, you know, I just need to work with it some more. But it's, it's like very uplifting and inspiring. But I just didn't know how to. Yeah, how to pick it up. And you pick it up. That's why he says not by analysis, not by intellectual analysis. You see the difference? If your mind is thinking, oftentimes when we tell people to pray, when we're helping people to pray, we say, do not think about the specifics of the situation. Don't think about, oh, he really needs to stop drinking. If he doesn't stop drinking, his wife's going to leave him, and who's going to pay the bills, and how are the children going to get along? Don't think of any of that. Just penetrate in your prayer to the, to the soul nature of the person you're trying to help and just infuse that person, that their soul, with light and energy, and their soul will know what to do with it. And when you're all caught up in the details, you, you're not, it's, it's much harder to have a superconscious solution. You tend to try to paste on them with your willpower your ideas of what they should do, center to center. And it's, that's, just, that's just true of everything. It's not always easy because you have to restrain all that. <laughs> which is sometimes like wild horses, right? Which is what he talks about in the, in the next chapters. The third chapter is stilling the waves. The second one is raising your consciousness. Okay? But that's a good question. Any other comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, oh. um, what you're talking about in getting to the, the center of a problem like that, going down to the deep level, now that is in meditation where you're doing that? 
Well, if you have time. If you're just walking down the street and it has to be solved instantly, you'll do it faster. But it, in all circumstances, yes. I mean, yes, if you have the time and you are meditating and you're trying to solve a problem by all means, but it's a habit. It's a way of just whenever things are not coming the way you want, drop into the center of it. I mean, you can just be sitting and talking to someone and in your own awareness, you see it's all consciousness. You know, you're in a job interview since you've talked about looking for a job and you're just sitting across from someone. Instead of just thinking, oh, you know, he's the boss, he's going to like this, he's not going to like me, just be, you're, you're just two souls together wearing these little uh, facade of all this stuff. Even if you're just talking about the job situation, relate soul to soul. Not in a way that's weird, you know. I look at you and I see you. <laughs> you know, that's weird. But inside your heart, just be calmly centered soul to soul. You know, God, why have you brought me here? How can I help you? How can I serve? I saw the quote of somebody saying, uh, when two people sit down, uh, Joe smiles to Joe. I think that was Emerson. When we, we, meet, we meet at this level, but it's really at this level. Daniel Brinkley, when he was out of his body, having his first out-of-the-body experience, observed that communication first happens from this enormous confluence of everybody's energy, which all mingles, and then finally they speak. But the words that come out of their mouth are the last thing that happens. The first thing that happens is all this merging of energy. And it's because all the energy mer merges that the words come out, and it's because of the merging of energy that they can understand each other. Isn't that interesting? Because it's the last thing. Consciousness is first. Consciousness, energy, then manifestation, then the sound. So when you're sitting with someone at all times in your life, live from the spine, live magnetically from the spine, live from the higher centers in the spine, and then you move through life with, a, with a real force. If, if you're always letting yourself feel depressed and down and identified and let your energy living in your lower chakras and you, you know, develop these habitual stances, then you don't have a lot of magnetism. And then nothing really sort of seems to work. But if, you know, just, I mean, just look at it. You know, a person, a person who has that, Swamiji has always been so incredible because his, he's not as heavy as he used to be. He used to be more dramatic when he was heavier. But, but in the Bhagavad Gita, they make a lot about Arjuna pulling his bow. And that's a, that's a symbol. The string is the straight spine. You string the bow, and the, it's the front of the body. And yogis often have a sort of a, a bigger tummy because they're very relaxed. You know, we're all, all, all tense here, but you're very relaxed. And also the proper breathing and the practice of pranayamas and so on. So you end up with a bow. And especially if you have courage, you, leave, you, you face life with your heart. You know, a lot of over-intellectual people develop this. Or tim you know, this is, this is the stance of a timid person. And really where that comes from is... is this instinctive effort to pull the heart back in. I mean, think of it. I, I, I actually, in my life, had to change my posture at one point because I had two reasons for doing it. One was to protect a tender heart, and the other was to try to push with the frontal lobe. <laughs> I wanted to break ground with my mind. And, and then I observed that Swami leads with his heart. You know, he has a, he has a powerful mind, or at least they're on a plane. You know, it's neither one nor the other. It's just, it's, on, it's all together. But you just, just, you can see what physically what that is. 
And that's indicative of consciousness. And if you, if you put that consciousness together in the right way, and, and you can often get at it physically. You know, I was having a lot of trouble with my shoulders and I had to learn to readjust my posture because it was pain. But the, the need to do that uh, was very scary because, you know, this, is, this was a very protective posture. And so you can, you can get at it a lot of angles when you ask these questions, how do I change? Well, one is to just, you know, pull your heart out, pull your shoulders back. And just the act of doing that is a constant reminder of what it is that you're trying to do. And whenever the world seems to intimidate, you go to the center of it. Who, who's intimidating who? I am the infinite spirit meeting my own. You know? Just because so-and-so is playing the game of being with some big cheesy person in a business or something, you know, underneath we're all just... Big cheesy is not the right word. Big cheese is what I mean to say. <laughs> you just, isn't that funny how a little bit of a shift changes the word? <laughs> the big cheese. You know? Oh, yeah. But I mean, you think, but, but you see, he says here also, it has to be done with kindness. Wherever he says it, he says it must be done kindly. Yes. Your intuition must be cultivated, not abstractly, but with kindness toward all. Because uh, with lack of kindness, the, there's no calmness. Without the calmness, there's no intuition. And acceptance, and acceptance of whatever happens. There's many factors here, the likes and dislikes of the heart, which come the next. That's what, when we're talking about raising your consciousness, we start talking, I love this, where he has this, these three levels. Is that in here? These three levels of things that bother us? Or is that the next chapter? Well, these are, oh, this is the four. These are the four levels. But where he talks about the impressions, the karma, yeah, and the karma, right? It's just fabulous. Here he talks about, in chapter two, he starts talking about these four different types of people. Do we have more questions before we get on to this? Yes, Marilyn. Um, when I read all these words, or in He, he put raisins along the spiritual yeah. path. <laughs> but, you know, that's exactly true. We can't get it if we don't go. No. That's why I was saying this is not an intellectual book. This is a very practical book, and it's oriented toward practicing it. But just that very simple thought of, you know, how do I solve a problem? I go to the center of it. Even the, the, the exercise he has in there, the way to deal with pain is to go to the center. Swami, Swami has for years... He, he doesn't take Novocaine at the dentist. He hasn't taken Novocaine for years at the dentist. And I'm just not talking little fill, fillings. I'm talking no Novocaine ever. Root canal, no Novocaine. Nothing. He just he called me just yesterday to tell me about his latest dental experience. He loves to do this because it just 
freaks everybody out so much. He broke a tooth over Christmas, a front tooth. And he had to go to the dentist there in Italy. And this is a new dentist. And he said, no, no, thank you. No Novocaine. The dentist was, like, quite upset. It's very upsetting to the dentist to have him take no Novocaine because they're, they're accustomed to being able to hack around there with impunity. But he absolutely insisted no Novocaine. And uh, but he felt like the dentist was out to prove to him that he really needed it. And so it was particularly rough. He extracted a whole tooth. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a live nerve, the root, everything pulled the whole thing out. Right. No Novocaine. Swami was perfectly still and perfectly calm. And he just, and then they, you know, put the whole thing back in, whatever they did. And he said, I just did not allow it to define me. He said, it just wasn't me. It was, ha it was something that was happening, but it wasn't happening to me. And I, it's, it's quite something, though. It, just, it makes me shudder just to think. I'm going to have my teeth cleaned tomorrow. I can hardly bear the thought of it. Okay. And, uh, I've always been able to do that, too. Have you really? Um, because my father... I don't really know. I don't know what he is. Really? Interesting. So, I didn't like you any time without meditation, but I would just kind of relax on our chair and visualize our branch of the Mapadalas. Yeah. But I had to go back to meditation because the dentist was really thin. Yeah. couldn't believe it was so many things. You don't have a crown to your head. It was just too hard on the dentist. Yeah. <laughs> no, it really is. It really is. It's very hard on the dentist. He said, I don't see how anybody can take that kind of thing. Or they're afraid that you're <laughs> well, or you'll you'll move and they'll hurt you. I mean, it's, you know, that you'll you'll jerk at the pain. It's no, it's very true. But but he, here he says that, and I haven't had the chance to try this, thank God. But when he talks about uh, going into the heart of emotional trauma, you know, just go to the very center of it, because we we spend so much time trying to hide from it. Just go right to what you know. What is the center of this? What is at the center of it? The divine is at the center of everything. I mean, there, there, if you go to the center of everything, everything, there is divine at the center, and then where is the pain? I know just even, in, uh, I know in Stephen Levine's book about dying, there's some meditations about pain, and that's what you do, is you keep asking yourself, where is the pain? Where is the pain? Where is the pain? And if you just keep going, to, trying to go more and more into where is the pain, there, it isn't anywhere. The pain is a perception in your consciousness. And, you, and you, if you really focus, you just realize it's just a perception in my consciousness. So if I go into the heart of my consciousness, I, I perceive things differently. I mean, if we learn nothing else, you could just think of the power of that, whatever comes. I've been uh, memorizing, rememorizing Master's poem, Samadhi. It's an instruction he gave, and we're about to put verses on the wall, so I thought, and, to, and ask people to start memorizing again, so I thought I'd better get ahead of the curve. Um, and it, uh, I used to, when, when I lived in the monastery many years ago at Ananda Village for eight years, we would recite it after meditation every morning. So at one point in my life, I didn't know it, but I've only, I, I've lost it completely. I mean, I've lost the completion of it, the completeness of it. But there's so many phrases there. You know, vanished the veils of light and shade, lifted every vapor of sorrow, sailed away all dawns of fleeting joy, gone the dim sensory mirage, love, hate, uh, life, death, health, disease, perish these false shadows. And I've been just practicing, like, why solve your problems with little solutions? You know, some little thing happens to you, boom, perish these false shadows, you know? <laughs> Don't mess with anything in the middle. <laughs> but it's very powerful. 
It's very, very powerful. You have that thought in your mind. This is just an illusion. There's nothing happening here but my consciousness. And if you, if you just train yourself to go right to the heart of it, and no, it's not easy, but God, it's harder to live without it. You know, we sort of act as if like there's another alternative. What's the other alternative? Misery. We don't always see it for the disaster it is, as he says very kindly to us, but it is a disaster. So that's the that's what he's trying. Awaken to super consciousness. All right. In the meantime, let's take a short break. Okay. Um, why don't I just take questions for a little bit here and see where we are? Because I, there's other things that I can and will do, but let me see what else is... Are there, are there specific issues in any of these chapters that you want me to address? Okay. If not, then I will just say a few things that are important. Okay. The second chapter, Raising Your Consciousness, has this description of the four levels of development that we all go through. And uh, I can summarize them again in, in words, but they're not that hard to understand in the book, so I want to talk a little bit about what the implications of that are. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it gets a little confusing to figure out which way is forward on the spiritual path, even though you wouldn't think so. Sometimes we actually can confuse ourselves because we think of it in too linear a fashion. We don't realize that what we're dealing with is not getting from here to there, but expanding our consciousness from wherever we're standing. And this is where Swamiji does such a masterful job of sort of building concepts through the course of a book. And what he, what he was building in, in these earlier chapters is this idea that there's really two directions that energy goes, that consciousness goes. It either becomes more expansive and aware, or it becomes more contractive and unaware. And there's a tremendous um, karmic habit based on our long association with matter that makes us feel happier when we're contracted because we've been contracted for so long. You know, a picture that's really sort of interesting to draw is like this. <clears throat> and this is us as our normal consciousness is, right? We are at the most contracted point that we'll ever be right now. And that in, in, as we expand our awareness, we go out into these great, literally opening out into infinity. But oftentimes, instead of solving our problems by becoming more aware and expansive, we just try to, to solve them by squeezing down harder, right? By identifying more, by limiting ourselves more. Now, forward on the spiritual path is to expand, and backward is to contract. But it depends entirely on where you are, what is expansive and what is not expansive. And it's not just a question <clears throat> of looking good. It's a question of really what's going on in your consciousness. picture that I sometimes put on the board here is that um, a lot of times people will do the right things. They will behave properly, but the core motivation for behaving properly is not expanded. A lot of times people will have a lot of fear. And because of that fear, they'll be very charitable, they'll be very kind, they'll be very harmonious, they'll be get along with everybody. They'll never argue, they'll always be the peacemaker. And everything will look like it's supposed to look, but the core of it is, is fear of doing the wrong thing, being misunderstood, being rejected. You know, we all, psychology tells us all about these things. Expansive for that person may to be to become angry, to be disharmonious, to refuse to do what other people want, to become rebellious, to quit your job, you know, just all kinds of things that 
on the surface won't really look like you're you're doing what would be a nice girl would do but in fact what you may be doing is you may be breaking out this inner consciousness which is very contracted and afraid of what would happen if so you can't always just look at it simply these four stages of development however are the are the, are the clearest way that that um, that I know of to really sort of be able to tell sort of what's the, the beginning stage, the lowest level, the peasant stage is very identified with material materiality, very passive, very uncreative, very looking as uh, to just, um, as Swami said, take your values from other people, don't think for yourself. And uh, uh, he, did, he didn't write it in here, but it's written in other places. You escape from pain by trying to dull your consciousness okay and that's drinking television drugs overeating too much activity overwork um, too many distractions all those sorts of things that's the lowest level of awareness how do i deal with the things i'm afraid of i i um i just dull my consciousness down okay now um the motivating force, again, Swami doesn't put everything in here in the book, the motivating force for that level of consciousness generally is, excuse me, success and failure is described by pleasure and pain. If I feel pain, that's bad. If I feel pleasure, that's good. So what motivates you out of that is, is punishment. <laughs> if the punishment is worse than the necessity to put out energy, then you'll put out energy. Um, if you have children who are inclined toward this way, you have to punish them to get them to do anything. You can't inspire them with ideals because ideals don't move them. Sometimes ourselves, we're just simply not going to be inspired because it's the right thing to do. The only thing that will inspire us is what will happen to us if we do it, if we don't do it. You know, just the fear of catastrophe. Okay, now, the, the next stage of development after the peasant stage is when we begin, and I love the way Swami describes it, that these are stairways we walk up. So you have the lowest step and the highest step still of that category. And when you get to the higher step, you begin to see. Maybe the fear of punishment has caused you to put out enough energy that you begin to get more pleasure out of putting out energy. Gee, you know, if I work and get a little more money, I can buy more good stuff that I really like. So I'm willing to put out a little more energy to have more stuff because I suffer more when I'm just, I don't have anything. I don't have food. I don't have a place to live. I don't have anything nice to have or use. So I'll work a little bit to get something for me. And so then we enter into the second stage where we're willing to put out energy and it's about energy and greater awareness. See, the awareness increases. If I put out energy, something I want comes to me, right? And so I put out a little more energy and then I realize the more energy I put out, the more of what I want comes to me. And then Swami describes it perfectly that at that stage, it's still all about myself. And he says, and even your charity will be for ego motive but God tricks you and so you do the right thing for the wrong reason and then you accidentally get feedback that causes you to want to do it for the right reason so it's it's a, again a progressive stage so sometimes it's better to do the right thing for the wrong reason because it will give you experience and then that experience will be your teacher and then you begin to see things in terms and when you get into the the third stage of development which he calls the warrior level well, you begin to do things because you've begun to understand on an abstract level that, 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 that certain things are right and that when I'm in harmony with what's right, my experience is the best of all. And it's not merely just enough to get for myself, but that I have a greater pleasure 
And I get more happiness when I also include the happiness of others. And so our awareness begins to expand. From the lowest level, where all I'm thinking about is myself and what I, you know, how, how I can get away with putting out the least amount of energy, to the willingness to put out energy if there's something in it for me, to an appreciation of putting out energy if there's something in it for anyone. Right? And all of that, what is happening? Our sense of identity with reality is expanding. We're get, becoming more and more aware. We're moving, being uh, just thinking about yourself and thinking about your uh, physical low energy is the lowest level that you can live on. It's the most dense filter to superconsciousness. You understand? But if superconsciousness is everywhere and everything, the more you include in your awareness and the more you identify with, the more you're moving toward that level. And that's why we describe so subtly, it's a, it's a beautiful description of the, of the transition between the third and the fourth level, the, what he calls the priest level, is after a while you feel so uh, confined by the fact that you're just always working from your own mind and your own self. And it, it just feels so uh, small that you, that you just long to be part of a bigger reality. And that's, that's, again, when your consciousness expands even more. When people are just moving into the merchant level, to just be able to exercise their ego is really great. You know, and you see, I remember when I had a, a little a moment in, in a political scene that I was involved in in Nevada City years ago, and the way I described it is I got to carry a briefcase and wear shoes with heels that clicked. <laughs> And I had to walk into the local courthouse with heels that clicked, carrying a briefcase, right? You know? I mean, it's a, it's a person. It's a persona you have, like that, right? And you see people coming up into that. For me, it was a costume. <laughs> but you see people coming up into that, and you pass them in the halls, you pass them in the cities, and you can see that they're really... The little bird is in flight for the first time, and it's having a good time, Right? It's just feeling its power and it's really enjoying it. But then there comes another level. Well, you even become more refined in that, more generous with it. But the mere fact of just acting as yourself feels so small you can hardly stand it. I mean, you just really can hardly bear it any longer. And that's when the consciousness begins to seek for some unity with the divine. Right? And so it depends, too, on which uh, one of those stairs you are, not... Not, not merely, you know, sort of globally in your whole life, but moment to moment, what the next step for you to do is. If you really are just a blob in your bed, right? And it's just one of those days where you're just not getting up, right? It, it, just to get up, to go to the store to buy yourself a candy bar is forward, right? <laughs> I mean, but... If you're in seclusion, meditating and having wonderful meditations to go out and get a candy bar is backwards, right? So it just depends on the day and the year and the month. And for some, some person to be very ambitious enough to work their way through law school and to become a person who wears, you know, shoes that click and carries a briefcase could be a real forward motion for them. You can't stand there and judge and say it isn't. But for someone who has real spiritual potential to not have the courage to walk away from something that they've long since outgrown, that's backwards. So it, it's, it's very much having to do with whether it expands or contracts your consciousness. 
because super consciousness super conscious is everything we've got to take these filters off you can't skip either you can't just go from being uh, completely unaware to super conscious you have to work your way through all those stages and so you also have to have the humility and the simple self-honesty to say look this is where I am you know this is what I need this is this is the lesson that I'm having to learn one of the ways you can tell is if it's right in front of you you know, somebody asked Swamiji once a real like deep question, like, how can you tell what your dharma is? He says, well, if it needs to be done, and you're next in line. <laughs> in other words, if it's there, if it's in front of you, you don't really have to ponder it very long. If it's, if, you've ex- if it's in front of you to be done, if you have a family to support, if you have a rent to pay, if you have debts to pay off, if, 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 and if nothing else is opening, don't be afraid to just put out energy because it's all in your consciousness. Situations are neutral. You can wear those shoes that click and carry that briefcase and actually do it very super consciously. Some people are doing it entirely to affirm the ego and others are doing it with a super conscious flow. You can't tell just by looking from the outside. You have to know, be able to look on the inside. You have to be able to feel yourself. If you find yourself caught in a circumstance that doesn't seem as expansive as you'd like it to be, do it with expansive consciousness and you will change your magnetism and more will be given to you. There's a great secret, which is that prosperity is very much uh, tied to gratitude. And if you're very ungrateful for the opportunities you have and squander them, then God just doesn't usually sort of waste a whole bunch more on you. If you give somebody a present and they say, I hate this, and stomp on it, you're just not likely to buy them another one really soon. Right? If they make the best use of it and show that they really appreciate it, then you're very inspired to give them more. It's just the way it is. And God is not unkind or cruel or self-interested. It's just it's, it's not a magnetic consciousness. So um, are there any questions or comments on that? Yes, Cyrus. It's been a little how uh, Rajarsi, which was pronounced his name, Jennifer, has that approach to being involved in business with Samadhi or... Well, he was driven to... Well, he did it through his whole life. Rajasi Janakananda was Yogananda's most advanced male disciple who was fully liberated in this life. And he was a multimillionaire self-made. And he was a very powerful man. See, partly, it's a little different, Cyrus, in a certain sense, because he was born to do that. He was born to earn that money to help Yogananda's work. And so from a very young age, he was driven to do it. But he was driven to do it there's not that much you can find out about his life because he never talked Swami said he never talked about himself so you, you just sort of historically what you see is a person with enormous concentration um, uh, uh, just enormous concentration and determination who just you know focused on his goal and you know became an accountant became a this became a that whatever job he took he did it with full zeal and energy and excelled at it and with such determination that he generated magnetism that opportunity came to him. He had a tremendous instinctive sense of business. But then when he was a businessman, he used to not come into the office until noon because he would meditate all morning. And they would sort of say, with such a bu- so many businesses to run, how can you spend so much time away from the office? He said, with so much to do, how can I afford not to? Because he had the capacity, as Swamiji writes in here, in another place, I think, to just simply condense a great deal of the, of the reason that things take time is because we don't have certainty about what to do. 
And we could often spend weeks trying to figure something out. But if you have the capacity to be intuitive about it, you can just literally solve the problem in seconds because you're able to look at it, go into the center of yourself and the center of the problem, and you just know what to do. You don't have to have committee reports and people come and talk to you and everybody discuss the option and makes lists and then brainstorm and then worry about it and then sit awake at night. You just look at it and you know what to do. And Rajasi had that capacity. Rajasi also had the capacity to bring harmony. He had the capacity to bring people who didn't thought, think they agree with each other, didn't think they agreed with each other, to realize that they really all did agree with each other. Because he had the capacity to just see what everybody was trying to do and, art- and re-articulate it in such a way that they all understood that it was the same thing. And of course, in business, that's a tremendous benefit because if people will work together, also people were exceedingly loyal to him uh, because he was loyal to them and they respected him so much because he was so absolutely honorable that also people worked hard for him and they also loved him because he generated so much love because he was so in tune with the infinite and all of those things made him an enormous success and then he had the karma he had the gift of just being in the right place at the right time and making the right decisions it's not exactly like this but uh, they said that Napoleon would never make someone a general who wasn't lucky at cards (laughs) meaning if they didn't have the magnetism to be able to sort of cut through chance and make things happen their way, he knew they couldn't win in the war either. So, and a lot of you know business and just having the karma to be lucky. But that's built up over incarnations of very hard work makes you lucky. Because incarnations of very hard work makes you very attuned. And if you've worked very hard and you're very attuned and you're determined and you've developed those qualities, my husband wins at cards. I mean, cards that are not even games of skill, he'll win. Just because he has that, he's very concentrated. And I always win at first and then I lose. <laughs> I don't know, it happens every time. I think this time, I don't think I've ever actually, you know, in the total cosmic scheme, turned out to be the winner. Because there's just a kind of determination, just a quiet determination that, that causes my hands to be bad and his to be good. <laughs> but it's 20 years of it, so I think it's really more than just chance at this point. I don't much care about cards. There's part of that, but <laughs> I don't think he'd win there because it wouldn't be honorable. But but there's a certain power, you know, that just puts you in the right place at the right time because of lots and lots of lives of the right action. So Rajasi also had that. He had all this good karma, and his money was going to be for a good purpose. So he was always in the right place at the right time. That was his luck, which was also the magnetism of his spine. You know, as we were talking about. He's a very good person to meditate on if you're trying to make money and do business, you know. Get get his the little book downstairs about him and there's going to be a book coming out with a lot of letters between him and Master which are really incredible. So these four stages, uh they uh, perspective of well, that they all they all lead to reincarnation. The whole system, Swami just you know gives it a paragraph here. Without reincarnation, it's a whole pretty discouraging prospect. If you recognize that your goal is infinity, you're kind of looking at the watch and looking at the calendar, and you're really pretty sure you're not going to make it. <laughs> but also, it 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 puts as Swamiji writes so perfectly. It makes reincarnation more than a fluky thing. 
you can see that what we're doing is a very long progressive cycle. Just Once you sort of really get into the concept of reincarnation, your whole sense of time just changes. And it's very relaxing. Just, just like if you know that you're you know, that you have three months to accomplish it, and it's, it's a job that really fits within three months, you just relax. You just know I'll work on it a little bit every day. And then it'll be done in the time that it needs to be done. And at the same when you realize, I have as, as much time to accomplish this as I, as I need to take. Not that you necessarily want to take an infinite amount of time, but I just have to move at my own pace, and I just don't have to be tense about this, because it just keeps going in a perfect cycle. And if I die, I will simply, you know, exit from this world at whatever level of consciousness I've attained. I may progress some in the astral world, and when I re-enter a physical body, I'll, I'll re-enter with everything that I have now. Yeah, I remember even uh, that popular movie Ghosts with with uh, Patrick Swayze or Demi Moore, which was actually it was quite a good movie from certain points of view. Um, I like it when Hollywood helps us, you know, because I can see, remember ghosts? And everybody says, yeah, they saw ghosts. But, but he, was the, he was confused because he was killed suddenly, if you remember. He was killed suddenly, and, and as he was going toward the light, the woman that, that had watched him be murdered and whom he loved started screaming, and, and he got confused. And so he got caught with his concern for her, and he wasn't able to, to walk away from that life as the light was trying to call him. And so then the, the drama of the movie, which is really quite fun, was him trying to take care of her and help her and figure out why he'd been murdered. And, you know, it, lots of fun things got in there. A medium who channeled him and stuff. Finally, when it's all done... Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. When, when it's all done, and he sort of finished his business with her, and then the light comes again, partly because... He's had some time to get used to the fact that he's dead, which it is a little sometimes tricky if you die really suddenly because you, 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 know, you, you take one step from the physical world into the astral and there's no time in between. Sometimes that's good, but sometimes it's, it's, people think it's a curse to die slowly, not necessarily at all, because if you die slowly, you have time to release. And when you finally let go, you're ready to go. If you're strong, or if it's your karma, you just die fast. But when he finally got used to the fact that he was dying, he also was able to see, standing in both worlds as he was, and, he, and you know, the big climax of the movie is when he says, don't you understand all the love we have we take with us? He just had this perception, naturally born of the human body, that this enormous love he had with this woman was dependent upon her being a woman and him being a man. But when he stepped out of that context, he suddenly realized, wait a minute, the love was there first. That's why we were able to have this. And so it never leaves us. We don't lose it just because we shift in and out of these bodies. Everything that's, that's true stays true. That's what uh, actually Swami writes about in you know, this next chapter. He talks about these, these, these eternal levels of true joy and true bliss and true wisdom and, and true feeling. And then he talks about the filter that we put on it which is the, the up and down waves of this life. And that we think that the waves of this life are the true reality, but they're not. They're the, they're the ocean rising and being agitated. And then we, we sit on the agitation, and because we're accustomed to that kind of restlessness, we think that that's the actual experience, but it's not. The experience is coming from the depth of the ocean. And in fact, 
the more you get into the depth of the ocean, the more you realize that these waves on the surface disturb that experience. Now, most of us are not at the stage of renouncing that level. But it is. That's why people become monastics. That's why people just turn their back on all of it. They just renounce home, family, children, money, comfort, all, everything that we think is the definition of all those states, they realize is a distraction from those states. Isn't it? I mean, it's, it's very important to contemplate that. Not that we need to push ourselves beyond where we are, because it's very important to relax and be what's really real for you. But again, it's like, how do you solve the, the inevitable problems? How do you get away from the inevitable suffering? Not by clinging to it all the more, but by going to the center of it. What is at the center of my great love for this person who's now rejected me? What is at the center of it is the fact of love. It's not your love for this person. It's the fact of love. You know, what is the, at the center of my great desire for this event or that event? It's some state of consciousness which is inherent within you. And that's where he's saying here, if you go into the heart of it, even if it seems like a trauma, at the heart of it, you can dissolve it. Because all it was was an extension of your own nature into something, and the wave rose and then the wave fell as they inevitably rose. And it doesn't mean that you don't ride them. You know, you can ride them because here we are. That's what we're supposed to do. This is the game that we're playing. But if you if you ride them from the depth of the ocean and every time they rise you know it's the depth rising or if you try to you know you rise them ride them from the top and swami writes in here trying to win people to his cause of meditation by just reminding them it just no matter it goes up and down every time you get a fulfillment you, you fall i mean there are those all those wonderful stories of these enormously rich people who end up bankrupt there's so many stories the most powerful people and they end up crashing and, and there's this cosmic law that for every up, there's a down. The, you cannot, the wave can never remain at the top. It always has to fall. And Swamiji has said many times, I, I don't even know how to think about this, but it's an amazing thing to think about. The result of all of your incarnations, when you're finally done, all of your great lifetimes of success will be absolutely balanced by lifetimes of failure and the whole thing will be zero just zero that you just you can never hold it at any level where it be, when it stops being zero is when you cease to live on that level and then it just it sort of rides itself out you have your good things and bad things you stop creating more karma you just let the what you've done just play itself out it just plays itself out but you just live in the ocean and you don't you know he talks about these three levels where you Things make an impression on you, or you have intense likes and dislikes about them to such an extent that you act on them. And you start, you know, by controlling the things that impress you, and then you start controlling your likes and dislikes. Yes, I've lost my job, and now I'm homeless. But nonetheless, I accept what comes, and there it is. You know, yes, it, it's a little bit inconvenient, and I have to work with it, but I don't commit myself to this tremendous dislike of it. You know, yes, I behaved yesterday in a way that I didn't particularly want to behave, and I'm not proud of myself for doing it, one can say, but I don't hate myself for it either. These are the things that happen. I don't want to create any more of these up-and-down experiences. Let it be just an impression, you know. 
the impression that something has happened instead of the likes and dislikes, what to speak of the karmic reaction to it. And so these things will still happen, but they'll start flowing through us instead of always defining us. That's, that's the calm acceptance and joy. That's what it says in uh, the festival every week. Whereas in the past, the, the coin of our redemption was suffering and sorrow. For us now, that has been exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. Right? Now, it doesn't say that you don't have to bear the cross and that no difficulties come. It's just that the way to solve it is with calm acceptance and joy. Because the more we can extricate ourselves from these vortices of feeling, the more we can go inside ourselves and enter into the calm lake. What creates the vortices of feeling is this constant likes and dislikes. Oh, I hate that person. I like this person. I want this job. I don't want this job. I wish I had it like that. It's not like this. Why did he leave me? I wish he wasn't. I wish he would leave me. You know, just like back and forth. (laughs) But what is it? It's just I like it. I don't like it. I like it. I don't like it. I like it. I don't like it. Right? It's going to happen anyway, folks. So it's just a question of how much it ruffles the lake. You see the difference? Kind of the downside of the meeting seems that, uh, you know, you're supposed to remain cheerful and even minded at all times. Uh, but that also means kind of uh, enunciating really uh, something really good is happening, something really fun is happening, it seems like. Just, no, that's a know, misunderstanding. You're... No, that's a misunderstanding. Uh, it, it, the, uh, the most common misunderstanding is to think that even mindedness is more boring than peaks and valleys. But it isn't. It's, in fact, it's just the opposite. Even-mindedness is to always be experiencing everything from the fullness of the center of it. The peaks and valleys, I'll draw one little picture and then we'll stop here. Think of it like a tree. And the peaks and valleys are all the little branches out here at the end, right? If you're always consciousness of the trunk, its roots, and all of its branches, you can really enjoy the fruits, whatever they might be. If you allow yourself when fruits come to jump out here and then just experience the fruits, then you really actually, your experience is much smaller than it is when you see it for the whole. If you have, if God gives you a child, if God gives you a beautiful love affair, if God gives you a wonderful creative nature, if it gives you great success in your job, you experience it completely, but you experience not merely for itself, but for the whole flow of energy that it represents. And you enter into it with all of yourself. Much more so because when you're out here on this branch, you know how insecure it is. You know, intuitively, you know that if you put all your weight on this little branch, if something happens, you're going down, right? But if you're, if you're, if you're enjoying it from here, even if it's finished, you just go back to here. Nothing happens to you. And by the same token, if you go out here and it turns out to be a lemon, right? You haven't really defined yourself by your lemon. You just are having a lemon, but that's all right because there's a lot more reality here. Okay. Now there is pe- there are people who feel that it has to be up and down, and uh, they're just going to have to go through that. <laughs> what can I say? Others of us find that not as much fun as we used to. 